Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's going on here at the church, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media, so be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, enjoy the message. You know, the study on heaven that we've been doing has really honestly has been born out of this dark experience of my life when my Cindy passed away the end of May. uh, I began a study on heaven really for my own survival. Uh, I needed to be reacquainted with the hope of heaven, with the idea of reunion and with the thought that one of these days we will see our loved ones again. And I hope it's kind of hit where you are and I'll be honest with you this morning, it's uh, Sorry. Thank you. I'm still pretty messed up. I don't know that you can spend 42 years with someone you met at 17. adjust to that very quickly. So, uh, so I hope this series has helped you. First weekend out, we talked about purpose, that our lives are lived by purpose. We're not an accident. (laughs) You're an incident. God, as I said last weekend, didn't look down out of heaven and suddenly spot you and say, what am I going to do with that one? I mean, he has a plan for your life, a purpose. We talked about in Ecclesiastes 3, to everything in life there's a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. So our time on earth is connected to our purpose and you and I are immortal (laughs) until God is finished with us. And the minute he's done with us, he just calls us home, right? So life is connected to purpose. Now, it's his purpose, not ours. We're never ready to let our loved ones go. I don't care how long we have them or how much time we have to prepare for their departure. When that time comes, you never want to let them go. But that's not our call. That's his. And so in God's great divine plan for our life, when this purpose that he has for you and I being here is over, he just summons us home. Ecclesiastes says that the the body returns to the earth from whence it came, ashes to ashes and dust to dust, and the spirit goes back to God who gave it. So life, as we live it, is connected to purpose. And then the next thing we talked about in this series is not only is life connected to purpose, but heaven is a real place, a real place. When Jesus said, I go to prepare a place, the Greek word he uses, topos. We get topography from that word, a place, real place. I go to prepare, so as real as Fort Worth, Texas, I go to prepare a place for you, he said. And if I go, I will come again, receive you unto myself, that where I am there, you will be also. So we said heaven is connected to purpose, it's connected to a place. And then the third thing is, we said heaven has people there, real people, not just some disembodied group of spirits sitting on clouds strumming harps. That just sounds boring to me, I don't know about you. Good Lord, I'd hate, I'd hate to think that's what heaven is. But when you read the Bible, that's not heaven at all. It's a place where you worship. It's a place where you work. Think about it. If you were an artist on this earth, why would you not be an artist in heaven? 
If you functioned and had a great life on earth, why would you not function and have a great life in heaven? The things that we did imperfectly here, we'll do perfectly there. So the people in heaven are real, they're functioning, they're carrying on life. Remember at communion, Jesus said, one day I'll eat this bread and I'll drink this cup in my Father's kingdom. So people in heaven are eating and drinking? <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's emotion in heaven. God said in heaven, I'll wipe all tears from your eyes. So if you're weeping, there has to be emotion. When you read Luke 16, when the rich guy sees the poor guy, they remembered experiences on earth. You'll have your memory. I mean, I want to remember things Cindy and Jean and I used to do here on this earth, and we'll spend a lot of time in heaven just laughing about things we did on the earth. <laughs> My memory will be there. It'll be perfect. It's not perfect now. But up there, it'll be perfect. So we'll have perfect memory. We'll have emotion. We'll eat. We'll drink. We'll function. We'll do there perfectly what we did imperfectly here. All the hobbies and things you did down here, why would you not do those things in heaven? Absolutely. And this weekend, I want to summarize our series by talking about the promise, this promise, the promise of heaven. When Jesus was talking to his disciples in our text in, in John 14, Jesus was talking to them and he was saying to them, look, let not your hearts be troubled. In fact, if you have a Bible, look there with me. If not, we've got this on the screen. Now he said that to them because they were contemplating his death. They had walked with him and they had spent time with him. He was their best friend. And as I said a moment ago, you're never ready to let anyone go. They were not prepared. They were not ready to let him go. And they were wrapping their heads around the idea that he was about to leave them. And so Jesus perceives the brokenness of their condition and says, let not your hearts be troubled. Now, let me hit this again because this is important. He didn't say, let not your hearts grieve. You need to grieve, that's a healthy part of life. You, you've got, if you repress and suppress emotions that you're feeling, it can have a very negative effect on your emotional health. It's okay. The shortest verse in the Bible is in John 11, and guess what, it says Jesus wept. It, 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 it just simply means you're overwhelmed with emotion because the person you've lost uh, is gone and, and, and they meant so much to you and, and it's a normal, natural thing to grieve. It, it's healthy. In fact, the Bible says, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn for they'll be comforted. So let yourself grieve. And I found, and I don't know if you found this to be true in your grief, it's not something you really get over. It's just something you figure out how to get through. And so I'm suggesting to your heart this morning, he, he doesn't desire you uh, to be troubled. He does desire for you to grieve. Now there's a difference. To be troubled in the Greek is the idea of being conflicted, confused, uh, almost to the point of being in despair. And it's so important that you don't allow your heart to get in that condition because he will later say in Proverbs, out of your heart flow all the issues of life. That's why we say to people, I love you with all my heart. It means everything I am, it comes out of my heart. And so if my heart is troubled, if it's confused and conflicted, and, and if my heart isn't healthy, then my ability to relate to other people is going to be affected as well. So he said to these grieving guys, he said, look, it's okay to grieve, but just don't let your hearts be troubled. You say, how do you do that? He said, look, you believe in God, believe in me. What was he saying? Put your focus on me. I'm the one who said, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You can trust him. He cannot lie. He's the friend that will come into your life if every other friend walks out. So he said, trust me. 
Look to me. And then he immediately pivots and gets them to thinking about heaven. For in my father's house are many mansions, or some translations have it, dwellings. And I love this. If it weren't so, I would have told you. If there were no heaven, I would tell you that. But he said, I go to prepare this topos, this place. And if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there, you may be also. And I love the next verse because it includes a character that I really like, Thomas. Do you have a friend in your life or maybe you are that person in someone else's life that will ask the uncomfortable question? You have one of those friends that you always are afraid when they're with you because you never know what's going to roll out of that mouth. You have a friend like that? Are you a friend like that? A lot of elbows getting punched around there this morning. I, I think I treed something this morning. The point I'm making is there is, there is a possibility uh, to have that person in your life that will ask the question everybody else is wondering about but too afraid to ask. That's Thomas. And I'm sure when he asked this question, Lord, we don't know where you're going and how do we know the way? Probably the oxygen left the room for just a moment. But the reality is probably all the other boys were going, thank God Thomas asked that because I was thinking the same thing. I've never seen heaven. I, I, I've never seen it. And if it exists, how do we get there? And let me stop long enough to tell you, in the midst of your grief, and if your heart truly becomes troubled, it will cause you sometimes to doubt the things that you know you believe. Is there really a heaven? Is, is the things that we've been taught really true? I mean, is, there, is it really possible if it exists, is it possible to get, I mean, I, I, look, I'm not hating on Thomas. I'm saying he asked the obvious question. None of us had seen heaven. I haven't, have you seen, I haven't seen heaven. He hadn't seen heaven. The boys with him hadn't seen heaven. They're just, they're, 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 they know Jesus has never lied. In fact, in just a few hours, he'll stand before Pilate and Pilate had the best investigators of the then known day look into everything Jesus ever did every moment of his life and came back and said, we got nothing on him. He never said anything he shouldn't have said. He never treated anyone in a way that he shouldn't have treated them. He, he never took advantage of a single solitary, but we can't find anybody that has anything bad to say about this guy named Jesus. Remember, Pilate washes his hands, and you know what he said? I find no fault in him. Boy, that's the only person that could ever be said of, right? So the point I'm making is the boys had to be thinking, he's never lied to us. He wouldn't lie about this. He just said, if it weren't so, I would have told you. So Thomas asked the obvious question, how do we, if it exists, how do we get there? And Jesus gave the only answer, the best answer I've ever found. He didn't say, well, get the right religion, belong to the right church, give the right amount of money, be connected to the right group, memorize the Bible, know where you are doctrinally. None of that, none of that. You know what he said? I am the way, the truth, the life. No one gets to the Father, Jesus said, except by me. Let me tell you, it doesn't matter what you're wrong about if you're right about Jesus. And conversely, it doesn't matter what you're right about if you're wrong about Jesus. <laughs> Just get right about him. Make sure you know him. That's what he was saying. And can I tell you this morning, it is the will of God for every single solitary soul to know him. 
I love what he said in 2 Peter 3, 9. He said, I'm not willing that any, he didn't say many, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It is the will of God that everybody go to heaven. It is the will of God that everybody know Jesus. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Luke 19, 10, the son of man came seeking and saving those who are lost. 1 Timothy 2, 3, it is the will of God that all people should know Jesus. So that's the will of God. He wants everyone to go to heaven. He is merciful and he's just. And let me tell you something about him. He never hides the ball. He never hides the ball. He makes it possible for people to know him. In fact, he has revealed himself to people. John 1 said he's the light that lights everyone that comes into the world. That doesn't mean there's a spark of divinity in everyone and you become a Christ follower through some spiritual evolutionary process. Listen, it means there's a knowledge of God. No matter what culture you study anywhere on the earth, you'll find in that culture some form of worship. Where'd they get that? It's the idea that he is the man, he is the light that lights every man that comes into the world. Now understand this, God has equipped you and I and everyone else with three essential things necessary to know God. He's given us intellect, an ability to think. Intellect, you process, you think. Jesus loves me, this I know, why? For the Bible tells me so, I thought about that. Not only intellect, but he gives you reason, reason. Isaiah 1:14. come now let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins be scarlet, they'll be white as snow. So it's reasonable. You don't check your brain in the car and let some guy in a building somewhere think for you. Reason it out. Reason this thing out. So it involves my intellect, it involves my, third thing God's given me as a way whereby I can know him is my choice. I have an ability to choose. I can choose or refuse. I can say yes to him or no to him. And I go back to what I say. It is the will of God that I say yes to him. But at the end of the day, he will not force me into a relationship with him. He will not force me to go to heaven if I don't choose him. So he's a God who loves me. He's a God that loves you. He's willing that everyone know him. Believe it or not, there are circles of theology who don't believe that way. They think God just kind of selects a certain group to go to heaven and predetermines another group to go to hell. That God just looks down at humanity and goes, any, many, miny, mo, you go to heaven, to hell you go. <laughs> that nobody has a choice. Let me tell you something. That's not what the scriptures teach. He wills that everyone should know him. So I have an intellect, I have a reason, and I have a choice. You know another way he's revealed himself? Romans chapter one says he's revealed himself through creation. All of creation testifies there's a God. Romans chapter two, he says, your conscience will tell you there's a God. Remember what I said a moment ago, those tribes, those people groups, no matter how primitive, have some way of knowing, comprehending there is a God. Where'd that come from? He's made it known by writing it on their heart. A third way, we know there's a God, how he has revealed himself. He will reveal himself to you and me through circumstances. Remember in Matthew 5, Jesus said, hey, if your right arm offends you, cut it off. You better go into heaven with one and to hell with two. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out. You better go into heaven with one and hell with two. Well, what was he saying? Is he saying I'm some kind of sovereign sadist that takes pleasure in your pain? Not at all. He was saying, and get this, he was saying, if it takes a difficult experience in your life 
to bring you to Jesus. He's more just to allow the difficult experience than to let you go out into eternity never knowing him. I had a friend tell me one time, guy in the church, he said, Bill, I don't think I would have ever looked up had I hadn't first of all hit the bottom. So I was one of those hard-headed, self-made guys, and he said, I had had the props of my life knocked completely out from under me before I realized I need God. That's what Jesus was saying. So he'll use creation, he'll use conscience, he'll use uh, circumstances, uh, something else he'll use, he, he will use your friends, companions. Mark chapter four, Mark chapter two rather, he used the friends, these friends of this guy brought this man who needed Jesus, they brought him to Christ. How many of us in this room can say, I know Christ today because of someone in my life? Grandma, family member, friend, neighbor. (laughs) You know what witnessing is? It's just one beggar telling another beggar where you found bread. Let me tell you what Jesus did for me and maybe he can help you too, right? So it's creation, it's conscience, it's, it's companions, it's circumstances. By the way, it's the canon of scriptures, the Bible. John chapter 20, verse 31 says, these things are written. What, why is the Bible written? These things are written that you might believe in the Son of God. You know what an easy outline for the Bible is? You ready for this? It's pretty easy. From Genesis 1 to Malachi 3, the Bible is, the outline is Jesus is coming. When you hit the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the outline is Jesus is here. And from Acts 1 to Revelation 22, 21, it's Jesus is coming back. <laughs> if you miss Jesus, you need to reread the Bible. It's all about him. So he uses, and by the way, the, the, the last way he reveals himself, creation, conscience, companion, circumstances, the canon of scripture is through Christ. He sent Jesus into the world. The son of man, as I said, came to seek and save those who are lost. But let me give you something to think about before we go to the house. The first thing I want you to consider is the possibility that you could reach heaven three different ways. Now stay with me, don't leave yet. The first way that it's possible that you could reach heaven, number one, if you are unable to reason. If you're unable, what do I mean by that? Infants, children. People who have some mental um, deficiency that makes them incapable of intelligent reason and responsible choice. That's why I believe those people are safe. That's why I believe concerning God, he is merciful, he is just, and he is loving. So I know there'll be people who are safe, who did not have a mental ability to intelligently reason and make responsible choices concerning faith. And by the way, there are a lot of little ones who are in heaven who never reached that age before they passed from this life to make a conscious decision about Jesus. You remember King David when his baby was sick? Second Samuel chapter 12 records the sad chapter in David's life. And we have people in our church who have sick babies. We have little ones battling leukemia in our church. We have some like my little granddaughter has a terminal illness. And so I know what it's like to pray for someone to be healed. David prayed that his baby would be healed. He prayed for his baby so strongly that he fasted, he couldn't eat. Have you ever prayed for somebody so hard or wanted something so bad that your appetite was gone? And on one hand, you're weighing out what you know about the Bible, and on the other hand, you're looking at your reality. Have you ever looked at 
what you know about God's word on one hand and your situation in the other and try to see how they fit. Have you ever been to that point where it didn't seem like they fit? David prayed that his baby would be healed. You know the story. God said no. I told you a few weeks ago, one of the hardest things I've had to wrap my head around is being at the hospital and praying for a lot of guys who got to go home with their wife. And God told me no. A situation happens in life where a test of your faith is not always, please hear this, it's not always do you have enough faith to be healed. Let me give you a bigger test. Do you have enough faith not to be healed? Is your faith strong enough to weather the times in life where God just says, sorry, it's not gonna happen for you. David was there, God took his baby home. You know what he said? <laughs> he said, I can't bring that little one back. Here it is, I can go to be with him. Wow, that's the right thought. David knew that that baby was not old enough to reason but he knew where that baby was. It was in the presence of the Lord. So I say people that have the, uh, don't have the capacity for reasoning, when you look at the final judgment in Romans chapter one, it talks about willful rejection, willful rejection. So someone that's incapable of having intelligent reasoning that could lead them to a, a, a conclusion concerning faith, it is my conviction that they're in heaven. Jesus said in Matthew 19, remember, let the little ones come unto me and don't you forbid them for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Heaven's got a lot of kids. Second thought, it's possible to get to heaven not only if you're not able to reason, but number two, if you are unblemished by sin. <laughs> Boy, I just narrowed, I thinned the herd right there, didn't I? Good Lord. If it was possible, and it, if it is possible for you to live a perfect life, now don't strut yet. <laughs> I mean by that, you could keep every commandment. Now there was a rich young ruler that approached Jesus on one occasion who felt like he had actually done that. And when you read the narrative, Jesus closed in on him and though he had not violated the actual command, he had violated the spirit of the command. You see, in the Old Testament, you had to actually break the law to be guilty of the law. In the New Testament, if you just think about breaking the law, you broke the law. Good Lord. <laughs> in fact, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter five, if you hate your brother, you have already murdered your brother in your heart. Now, don't get me wrong. I'd rather you hate me as kill me, right? There's a difference. If you're gonna do something to a brother, hate him, don't kill him. But Jesus is saying, in my side, I know that before you kill someone, you, you have to first of all think through it, right? You have processed the possibility of this in your mind, so you are guilty in your heart before you absolutely are guilty in your hand. <laughs> in fact, James put it this way, James 2, verse 10, whosoever shall keep the whole law and offend in one point <laughs> is guilty of it all. If you're being held out of a fire by a chain of 10 links, how many links in the chain have to break before you fall in the fire? One or 10? <laughs> Let me tighten it a little more. Jesus said in Matthew 5, the thought of foolishness is sin. 
Who among us has not had a foolish thought since we've been in here? <laughs> I mean, the point I'm making is, is that great theologian Clint Eastwood said in Unforgiven, <laughs> we all got it coming. That's what Paul meant when he said, there is none righteous, no, not one. <laughs> Let's just face it, we're not perfect. I mean, that's why I said in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, and here's the standard, and come short of what? The glory of God. What is his standard? Perfection. Meaning we've missed it, we blew it. The moment we could have intelligent, reasonable uh, thinking about our decisions, we would choose wrong. So I'm just suggesting we have a propensity, this proclivity that's within our old nature to do that which is wrong. So the possibility is not even there that you and I could live a perfect life. It will never happen. It has not happened. We're flawed. We're sinful. So beyond the point of, uh, of, of reason, that one doesn't work for us. Um, unblemished life, that doesn't work for us either. So what's the third option? The third option is simply this. You just come to Jesus and unconditionally repent. <laughs> you just say, you're right. You know what confession is? Agreement. Agreement. Confession is just saying, God, you're right, I was wrong. That's all it is, it's not rocket science. You know what repentance is? It's to turn. The Greek word's metanoia, to turn. It means I was going this way and I turned around, I'm going the other way. Now, believe it or not, theologians have actually argued over is repentance, turning to God from sin, or turning from sin to God. The boys need something else to do, don't you think? I mean, if you're gonna, are you, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's two sides of the same coin. There are people in this room who've turned to God because they're sick of the life they've lived. They're sick of being sick. They're sick and tired of being sick and tired. They're just tired of it, they're weary with it. They want something different, nothing they're doing is working. God says, I keep banging my head against the wall because it feels so good when I stop. And there are people that live their life that way. So they turn from sin to the Savior. There are other people that turn to the Savior from their sin, potato, patata. It just, the important thing is you get to Jesus. When Paul was writing to the religious crowd who were looking back at Father Abraham and were wondering, was he saved by the works that he did, by the following of all those things and systems in the Old Testament? How is it that Father Abraham came into faith? And Paul answers it. He says this in Romans 4, what then is Abraham our father of the faith? What is it that he found? And then he said, Abraham believed God. He believed God and that faith was counted unto him for righteousness. You know how the people in the Old Testament came to faith? They looked forward to believing that one day Jesus would come. People in the New Testament and in our day today, we look back at the cross believing one day Jesus did come. Same faith. Abraham didn't see Jesus any more than I did. He died in faith believing Jesus one day will come as the Messiah, the savior of the world. One day he'll go to the cross and one day I'll die in faith believing one day Jesus did come and he did go to the cross and he did pay my penalty for my sin. I remember well the day I gave my heart to Christ. My dad's an old Baptist preacher. He was old school, hell, fire, damnation, old baby. He, I, I, 
I got some of his old preaching Bibles up in my office. They still smoke like old nuclear reactors. <laughs> I'm almost not kidding. <laughs> I used to threaten people and say, you don't want me bringing one of them babies down here. I'll lay that out here. You scare you. Anyway, it's scared. But I still think about some of his messages and get scared. But that was his style. That's how he rolled. That's how he, that's how he did it. But I remember I was a little kid. I had to sit by my mom, second row. That's where most pastor's kids have to sit, close to their mother, right at the front of the church. People say, preacher's kids are the worst in the church. You heard that? Do you believe that? <laughs> you know why, if that's true, you know why it's true? They grow up around those deacon's kids. They're the nastiest little... Man, brother doesn't stand a chance. Gonna give you one more? You know how you can tell there's a revival in the Baptist church? When the deacons all speak to each other in the liquor store. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. <clears throat> it's true though. <laughs> but I remember after my dad had preached one weekend, I was sitting there by my mom. I remember I just kind of tugged on her dress and I said, hey, I think I want to get saved today. I think I want to accept Jesus. Now, I remember our style of church, we did the invitation, right? Where we asked you to pray where you are. Back then, you would come forward and my dad would sing 15, 20 stanzas of just as I am to break you down. And finally, you'd come <laughs> just so you'd go eat lunch or beat the Presbyterians to the cafeteria. But anyway, I made my way down to the front and my dad looked down thinking, oh my Lord, what's he done now? Mama's brought him to the altar. <laughs> Maybe I'm gonna go down there and sacrifice him. I don't know what he was thinking. <laughs> my dad came down and asked me why I was there and I remember telling him, just a kid. I remember telling him I wanted to accept Christ. I wasn't very old. I hadn't done a lot of sinning. What little I'd done, I enjoyed. I just hadn't done a lot of it. <laughs> You don't have to have a PhD in sin to come to Jesus. You know, you get that later. But I remember my dad knelt beside me, he on one side, my mom on the other side, and he opened his Bible and he talked to me about the cross and he just said, Bill, never forget this, never, and I hadn't forgotten it, it's been a few years. Never forget this, he said, Jesus loves you. He went to the cross for you and he'll save you if you ask him. And the best I knew how, with all I knew about me, I trusted all I knew about Jesus. And it made a difference in my life. And you know what was strange about that? I found out not too many years after that, not too many years after that, in a church not far from there, a little Baptist church named Trentman Avenue Baptist Church. There was another preacher down there, a friend of my dad's, named Brother Bill Moffitt. He preached a real simple message and there's a little old blonde-haired, blue-eyed, cute little old girl that walked down the aisle and she gave her heart to Jesus. A few years later, I'd meet that girl, go out on a date, talk her into marrying me, <laughs> and we'd spend 42 years of our life together. And on May 31st, when that part of my soul was taken from me, I had a hope then that I still have today in this promise of heaven. As hard as it is, I know 
we're going to see him again. So friend, if you don't know Jesus, I highly recommend him. He'll give you the assurance. He may not give you answers, but he'll give you assurance. And that's what we need. Let's pray. Father, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's why it's on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. So Lord, I stand before these amazing people and those watching online with the hope of heaven. With the promise that you gave to Thomas and those other apostles there that night. Where you said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if you receive me where I am there, you may be also. Father, I think about friends that have left us just the last few hours. Keith Maddox, family's here this morning, stepped into your presence. Many others in this room have had loved ones and family that have left just in the last few hours. Many watching online or watching with heavy hearts. So Father, today as I close the service, we close with joy deep within us because of the hope of heaven. The idea one day we're gonna see them again. One day we'll laugh with them again. One day we'll recall all the great events on this life again. This is not goodbye forever. It's just so long for a little while. I pray for my friends in the room who don't have that peace. Maybe somebody watching online has never swallowed their pride and humbled their heart and simply said, Lord Jesus, with all that I know about me, I now trust all I know about you. I pray many have prayed that prayer. I pray, Lord, that they'll tell one of us about it before they get away from here. They'll email me and say, Bill, I prayed that prayer with you so I can talk to them about next steps of growing in their faith. And finally, Lord, for those who need someone to pray for them before they leave, I pray they'll come and allow somebody here at the front, spend a few minutes to pray for them. Thank you, Father, for the joy of knowing Jesus, for the joy it is to make you known. In your name we pray, amen. Have a great rest of your weekend. We'll see you soon. Thank you so much for tuning in today with us. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us so that we can follow up with you this week by visiting metchurch.com. We look forward to seeing you again next week.